0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything related to the world of music and occasionally go a little bit off topic. My name is Scott Cowie, I'm a drummer turned comedy singer-songwriter and apparently now a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians focusing on their careers and lives within, arguably the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free each and every Thursday here at ScottKelly.com. And now we're on iTunes. Please subscribe, rate, review, maybe give us five stars. And for now, enjoy the show. this week in the podcast, Mr. Steve White, a drumming legend, a man who has performed with many different acts and artists, including Paul Weller, Oasis, The Who, the list goes on. He does a lot of drum clinics as well. That's where a lot of different musicians turn up to see him perform all the different techniques and demonstrate all the different skills that he can perform at such a high level. And he actually does tours as this. With Chad Smith from the Red Hot Chili Peppers You need to go and watch them They're amazing together Steve's got incredible stories from a lengthy career It's going to be a good one For anybody that's wondering You heard me speak at length with this man right here, we've got him. And by the way, before we get to an interview with Steve White, it's important to note this. Barry Caulfield is in the studio. Say hello, Barry. Hi, Scott. He's back in action. Um, how are you, Barry? Good,
1: Scott. Hi, thanks.
2: Good.
0: Have you had any... Um, have you bumped into Wayne Rooney at all the last couple of weeks? <laughs> nope. Not bombed uh, any Wayne. Uh, for those of you that don't know or don't remember, I haven't had a chance to check it out, I do believe it was the Andy McKee episode. It was, yeah. Um, where Barry was outlining his thoughts on Wayne Rooney. He was about three or four seconds into his... Well, it was your debut. Podcast an, debut. Podcast debut. And it took Barry about three seconds before he started to have Morning. unleashing
1: <laughs> hell.
0: A verbal assassination on uh, Wayne Rooney, if we remember. Oh. And um, as we record this podcast... Three or four days ago, Wayne Rooney scores for the halfway line. did you see it <laughs> I did see it what were your thoughts I can. when I seen that goal I was thinking to myself Barry Caulfield is going to be sitting fuming somewhere I've always said he's a great player always I don't remember player. that do you guys remember that I remember if, if we can maybe we can dub in the footage later on Barry yeah. going he's an okay player
1: or whatever it was so what were your thoughts And the goal for Wailing halfway line? Great goal. greatest goal of all time no I wouldn't say it's the greatest goal of all time what would you say is the greatest goal of all time in all seriousness Scott <laughs> there's a question the, the both of those goals but, against
0: England the one they oh, okay. scored from the halfway line and the handball and the handball I, I don't know what one was better because the thing is with the handball right we're going off topic ladies and gentlemen this tends to happen when Barry's involved see if you remember the, the, the one where he scored with his hand Aye. he took it around about 4 or 5 players in the lead up to that Did nobody remembers that <clears throat> he takes right. it around about 4 or 5 players I think he does a 1-2 or
1: something happens ball goes in the air reaches up punches it but it uh, goes up with his hand beside his head, and then it goes in. That one,
0: that was also a good goal. If you consider the amount of people that he took it round and lead up to it, go and watch it back, ladies and gentlemen, on YouTube. Right. We'll but I think fresh. it was the sec- the second goal of the game. Um, he ran for the halfway line. I'd say that one has got to be the best oh. ever. What would you say? Hmm,
1: that's a hard one. That's a hard one. Difficult one. Right. See, the, it's the... got to be Wayne Rooney's from the weekends there David uh, uh, Beckham Beckham's halfway halfway line goal was a cracker as well it was there's been a few halfway line goals they're not I don't think they're the best goals though, aren't no, they? They're not, a, no they're not No, it's just one of these but,
0: um, it, no doubt infuriated uh, infuriated Barry the fact that Wayne scored such a great goal also on that particular podcast I think it was that one I said to Barry you need to beat my gig on the 20th and you were there I was there he turned up, everyone, and Yay. he says, Get a picture <laughs> because I am here. What did you think of the gig? It was great. It was really a good
1: turnout. Good yeah, turnout. Was, yeah. And it was. The bands before were really good as well. Really enjoyed Damon And the Star Man came on. It was great. Really good. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know, of course, I'm a.
0: Now, well, I, I'm a, I do comedy songs. Aye. You aye. haven't heard me sing
1: before? No. You that, haven't heard me play guitar I've before? No, you have really? I've seen you do your thing, you know playing about and I always knew you had the That's talent playing, playing guitar by the way yeah yeah, playing playing guitar I knew you had the talent but I'd never heard you sing in all my years i knowing you I'd never heard you sing and that was well impressed I've got the voice of an angel it's a really naughty
0: angel you it's know, a like a a, a a cross weird. between Mariah Carey Celine Dion all the greats Jerry Halliwell um, just a fuse all my greatest influences <laughs> together um, to combine the, a bunch of that. But again, it was so good that you were there and it was a good, it was
1: a good turnout, wasn't it? It was a good turnout. It I was as shocked turnout. as anybody. But yeah. the question I want to ask you, Scott, is what did you prefer playing? Guitar? Do you prefer doing the guitar singing thing or do you prefer the drumming? I'm more comfortable with the drum thing because I'm better at that.
0: Um, but it's fun uh, to do that and, of course, uh, to do all those songs which is kind of comedy I,
1: I would I, I would say your confidence with that is much it needs to be higher because you are needing to put the comedy f- factor into it as well you don't need to be up there serious this is my song he's all better like it you need to do the whole you need to laugh as well at this when I want you laughing I think that's harder I, I, hats off to you Scott hats off <laughs>
0: <clears throat> this is genuinely the nicest Barry's ever been to me in my life um, If I seem a bit off taken um, by surprise at this, it's because it's that is the case ladies and gentlemen, but no It was a good night and I, I've got to say um, uh, Again a good turnout yep. and a lot of different people believe it or not and this is absolutely true This is not some sort of um, PR line here or anything mm-hmm. a lot of people that were there know me now through this podcast that's, that's God's true. honest truth right people from Kilmarnock were coming to the gig we'll give a shout out to them later on people from Dundee as well All right. All right. Um, so it was really really cool I've been there You've been there? Dundee, no. All oh, right, I thought you were being there as in you've done a podcast and people have turned up to watch it no, as a no. result. You've been to Dundee. been to Dundee, yeah, Barry's been to Dundee, everybody. What's There's that? an interesting one for the, for the uh, podcast. Been been in a good have one you to been to, to Dundee? You. I've been to Dundee. Who cares, right? I've <laughs> played Dundee many times, right? Okay. Oh, I've sorry, Terry. So, so, sorry, sorry, uh, I've upset anybody from Dundee. Um, oh, no, I bet you Wayne his family from Dundee, so we've upset a Double uh, whammy, right? Anyway.
1: Steve White is on the podcast. You've seen Steve White play live. Steve White. It was a a long time ago. He was there with Paul Weller, Brayhead Arena. It was absolutely brilliant. And obviously, I'm not just saying this because he's on the podcast, but I was mesmerised by him and he's playing. And obviously, playing with Paul Weller isn't, you know, he wasn't being overly ambitious with his playing, but what he was doing was excellent. What he was doing was excellent. He was a really great player. You
0: can tell. When he's sitting and I bet he's the same with bass players as well, certainly from a from a drummer's standpoint. When I'm watching him and he's keeping it real simple on the kit, mm-hmm. just by his technique and his setup, I can tell that there's a lot more in the tank, so to oh, speak. Oh, I And you can tell when you watch Nathan East and he's, and he's playing one or two notes in that bass, you know, just aye. by looking at them, that there's a lot more he, to offer. Do you know what I mean?
1: Definitely, definitely. And, um,
0: and again, when you're
1: playing the bass, you look behind you. You're wanting somebody like Steve White there, don't you? No, oh, I. You want somebody that's solid as a rock. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You don't want to worry, and you know you wouldn't worry with a guy like that. He would up your game, definitely. Like, I, you up my game. I would say you up my game when I'm playing with, playing with you. Uh, I, mean, I appreciate basically. that, but again, I don't know what's going on here. I'm a little bit freaked out of this. Barry's been incredibly nice,
0: ladies and gentlemen, and as soon as we cut to this interview, no doubt he's going to, I don't know, ask me for money or something, or lift home. I don't know. Uh, but nonetheless, <laughs> he's absolutely right to be serious. Steve White, a great musician yep. and an absolute pleasure. To have him on the podcast for you guys that follow me on Twitter at SCOWY Music, SCOWY Music. You know, I recorded this earlier because I can't wait to tell you guys about it. But Barry hasn't heard this, so I'm keen to get his thoughts on it. Let's go right to an interview with Steve White. Hey Steve, how you doing?
2: I'm good, Scott. Thank you. How are you?
0: I'm good, yes. So, this year has been another busy one for yourself. Can you tell us about this trio that you've got on the go?
2: It's the, the trio Valore was um, originally founded in 2009 with uh, Seamus Behan, uh, who was playing with Paul, Paul Weller, and Damon Minchella, obviously my, uh, my good friend on bass. Um, that band had a bit of a sabbatical um, for a few years, and then last year we were invited to come and play for Record Kicks, our Italian record label, and um, Ju- um, Justin Sheehan jumped in because Seamus didn't want to do it. And it's been fantastic, and we've just gone from strength to strength with gigs, and uh, we did about, I think we've done about 30 shows now, um, and we've just done our first Italian show at the weekend, and then we're off to Spain week after next, and the new single is going to be out um, going up the next day or so, so it's all good.
0: Excellent. So let's go right back then. Now, I'm led to believe that you're a big fan of Louis Belson. Am I right in saying that you've seen him play live?
2: I saw Louis play live many times and I got to meet him and I got to meet him and Buddy Rich when I was a youngster. And my admiration for these men is no less diminished now than it was 40 years ago. Absolutely. Now, is that where the influence of the traditional
0: grip comes into play? Because obviously you're quite well known for your, um, for our non-drummer listeners, that's when you're holding the stick like a traditional pipe band drummer with all the stick.
2: Absolutely. That's where it comes from. It's a military, the military influence. And when I was a kid, it was watching drummers like Buddy Rich and Louie and just trying to copy them, really. And that's how I, you know, like we all kind of do, trying to emulate our heroes. And, and it's just sort of stuck with me, really. I've never really ditched it. I didn't know you met Buddy, Rich. you got to tell us this story. I did. I met Buddy um, at, uh, at Ronnie Scott's when I was probably about 10 or 11, and I, I got to stay up really, really late. And I, I managed to sort of walk into his dressing room, which, you know, when I became a performer myself, horrified me. Um that I had the sort of temerity to kind of gate crash Buddy Rich's dressing room. But he was lovely, he was really, really nice, and he was, um, he gave me a pair of drumsticks, which I still got, and a pair of drumsticks from Louis Belton. And um, then I met Buddy um, again at the uh, at a hotel in Manchester and uh, the Britannia Hotel. And I said to him in a lift, I said, you probably don't remember me, you won't remember me, but I'm a professional drummer now and I, and I met you when I was like 11. And he was like, that's really good, kid. Good luck with it all, you know, which was fantastic. We'll never see the likes of those guys again. Do you not think so,
0: Steve? Do you think they were one of a kind? I was actually going to ask you that. I mean, who do you think's came closest since then?
2: Uh, can you just repeat that Scott it's
0: breaking up sorry Yeah no problem I'm just saying these guys like you said they were they were one of a kind do you think anybody's came close since then or who's came the closest i suppose
2: Um i think that with with so many things in music it's it's a difference it's a different um, environment now and, and there's and, and there's the model the model that worked then doesn't really work that well now in terms of uh, personalities like Buddy were able to end up leading bands and uh, and, and kind of you know, having ca- careers that were uh, based around instrumental music and, and it's just almost impossible now to do that so um, they, they were very—they very, were at a very specific time there are some phenomenal drummers out there now and arguably drummers that, that probably have got even greater technical facility than the likes of the Buddies and the Louis Belsons but do they have the same feel? No they don't. You can hear the the one nighters and the and the personality and the you know the, the the hanging out with Frank Sinatra at the Sands and being with Sammy Davis and smart suits and Chelsea boots and E type Jags and and you know Rita uh, Rita Hayworth and the life that they lived and and I think that a lot of drummers nowadays kind of miss the point that these guys were living the dream. They were living the life and. And that reflects in their playing. And when I hear all these ultra-technical drummers that I admire so much for their facility, I just don't hear the personality of, like, a Buddy or a, or an Art Blakey or someone like that.
0: Excellent, Steve. It's really, really... It's, you always see that with yourself. You can tell that you've got... Where the roots have came from with yourself, you can tell there's a big influence there for all those jazz guys and all the swing guys, of course, and um, for anybody that hasn't heard those guys, definitely check them out, there's some great footage now that obviously I didn't have access to years ago when I was first listening to these guys, but the YouTube clips are there and they're extraordinary.
2: Awesome, awesome, just look, watch and learn, basically, it's incredible to, to see, to, because when I was a kid, it was just, the, the, to see these guys was a high for weeks and weeks, it was like Christmas, Um, And now that they're on the um, You know, they're readily available On YouTube, and it's it's like with my students The ones that, you know Do not take the time to check out Buddy Rich and Art Blakey, Max Roach They don't last long as students for me
0: (laughs) That should be a rule That's fantastic (laughs) that Steve
2: They really don't
0: (laughs) Great stuff, hang on a second Dear Steve, I'm just going to tell the listeners About some of our previous Episodes we have got a good few previous episodes for you guys to check out, available at both scottcurry.com and now on iTunes. Please rate, review, hit that subscribe button. Episode 1, Glenn Matlock from The Sex Pistols. Episode 2, Huey Morgan from The Fun Loving Criminals. Episode 3, Sandy Tom. Episode 4, Brian Rave from Paul McCartney's band. Episode 5, Orianthe. Episode 6, Bob Jacobs, the head spokesman from NASA. Episode 7, Dr. Phil Toll, Metallica's therapist. Episode 8, Graham Clark and Graham Duffin from Wet, Wet, Wet. Episode 9, Andy McKee. Episode 10, Steve Craddock from Ocean Colour Scene. Episode 11, Excellent Producer Cliff Goldmacher. And Episode 12, This very one, right here, right now, Mr. Steve White. Again, everyone, available at iTunes. Tell a friend, spread the word, let them know what's going on over here at both iTunes and scottkibbie.com. Now, tell us about how the Paul Weller gig came about, because you were really, really young at the time.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, incidentally, today it's 30 years since um, Café Blur was released, Wow. Um, which is, you know, quite incredible where those years have gone. So I was 17 at the time and, and just absolutely determined to make my way in the music business. It was just just, com- just completely focused and dedicated to, to pushing myself, really. And um, I got this sniff of an audition and just decided that I would just go and give it the absolute best I could, the best shot. And I asked Paul when I got to know his Studios what he was listening to, and he said, "I'm listening to blue note music, Art Blakey and Elvin Jones." And I just did the worst Elvin Jones impression ever, and he, he liked it. He must have liked it because he, he really did want something completely different from Rick. With all you know, the greatest respect to Rick, but what was the point of having a another Rick Buckler playing drums for him? He didn't want that, and I couldn't have been further from that situation, and. That was it really. I, I, I went and started to demo with a band and then started to tour with a band and then recorded with a band and then ended up doing my 25 years with, with Paul, you know, more or less, which was uh, incredible.
0: Live Aid, everyone's got a story about Live Aid, but your one has to rank up there because you were the youngest. I mean, you were either the youngest drummer or the youngest musician at Live Aid. What? Uh, there's, d- there's differing reports, Steve.
2: I, I got told by a journalist in Tokyo uh, that, was, that was I was doing an interview a few years ago with a journalist, and, and and the guy just said to me, "Do you know that you are the youngest musician that played on Live Aid?" And I d- I didn't know, and he's and, and this guy had kind of it's not anything I thought about, and and. I know that Steve Sidelnik, who was playing uh, in in the, the band with Style Council, was a, he's a little bit older than me. Um, so, you know, I guess I, I'm going to take that journalist's word. He seems to have done, done his research. And and um, quite a few people have said, you know, in this document in the history of it all, that I was the youngest person to perform on stage. So, uh, you know, which is uh, quite something, really. Now, looking back
0: on it, talk us through that day. The Who the are backstage. Paul McCartney's backstage. Uh, you're 17 years old at the time. What's your memories of that day?
2: Well, it, it, it was incredibly hot. That's the thing that I remember. It was a beautiful, stunning day, and quite a few of my friends from around here, have, have, uh, you know, had bought tickets that, and had had their tickets in their sweaty little palms to go up and. and we arrived quite early because we were on quite early and we were one of the only bands that got to do a sound check because we got to sound check the day before. So we were at Wembley Stadium the day before. It was us and the Quo um, were, were, uh, were were doing the the, um, the, the the sound checks. And then um, they were rehearsing backstage the finale before the concert actually um, actually started. So the, 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 the finale of Feed the World was, was like being sort of sang with an acoustic guitar, I think, or a keyboard, whatever, but it wasn't a full band. And, um, I just remember turning around and thinking, that's David Bowie (laughs) standing there. And David Bowie was standing there and, and, you know, and and it was all, it was quite a surreal day. And what happened was we did our spot and then we had to go to, to record a TV show that we'd been pre booked to do in Maidstone in Kent. So we, jumped in our door bus and drove to Maidstone in Kent. Streets were empty. Everyone must have been watching Live Aid uh, on the TV. So we got to Maidstone, did this TV show, which was a version of Come to Milton Keynes. It's on YouTube with um, uh, all the the brass players dressed as monks for some reason. It is on there. And then we drove back to Wembley, and then we got back to Wembley about 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, and we were then there as punters. So we had our passes, and we, we got to really just hang around and enjoy the show and enjoy the day and I stayed till the very end with Mick Tolbert and we were on stage at the the very end and you know shouting feed the world and then we went um, into London myself and Mick and I was never really a great drinker but we ended up at a a club on New Burlington Street with uh, Robbie Coltrane which was like quite surreal so it was me Mick and Robbie Coltrane just kind of Talking about the day till like four o'clock in the morning, and and then me and Mick went and got a breakfast at a place called a bar called Samantha's that used to do all that breakfast. So I kind of got in at about six o'clock the next morning thinking, Wow! And then we were leaving for Japan, I think the day a day later. um, And then you couldn't fly across the Soviet Union because it was blocked, so you had to fly up to Anchorage in Alaska and then fly down to Tokyo. So it was eight, nine hours up to Anchorage. And then another eight, nine hours down to Tokyo. So it was a long, long journey, you know. And even at that time, they still had flo- smoking seats on, on, the, uh, on the plane. So you could book a float smoking seat on, the, on, a, on a, a, a jumbo jet, which was incredible. But we got to Anchorage in Alaska. And um, me and Steve Sedonic went to buy a, a hot dog, because there was a hot dog stand there. And um, the lady behind the counter literally said, I saw you guys on Live age yesterday. You were on TV and, and I just thought, wow, this concert, this is global. This has absolutely touched people all over the world. And I think to a certain degree, the music business went to the, went to the next level on that day because I don't think anybody really knew how big it was actually going to be and how significant, you know, and then obviously Mandela and, and everyone seemed to be having a concert at, um, at Wembley for something. But um, there was a real sense of innocence about that first concert, um, which um, I'm fans of certain bands and not fans of other bands, but I don't think anybody really did that gig thinking, well, this is gonna be good for our career. Everybody did it because they wanted to do it. And some people got fantastic boosts to their career, Queen and U2, and you know that. And you know what, good luck to them, because I just think everybody that came to that day came with the right spirit. Absolutely We're going to forward on 20 years now, Steve, right? Yeah, yeah
0: I was sitting watching the television And um, watching Live 8, of course yeah. And I'm trying to think to myself Right, who have done the two gigs? And of course, The Who come on the TV Oh, yeah. right, okay, that's a band that's done the two events yeah. And then yeah. on the drums, you're playing I had no idea that you were going to be drumming with The Who that day Prior I, to that, i I'd been really a bit- have,
2: I didn't really have much of an idea myself, to be honest But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, there was, in, in kind of trivia there was myself um, playing drums for The Who, and The Who had obviously done Live Aid and Live Eight. And then Steve Sedelnik, who was playing with, with the Style Council, was also on drums with um, Madonna. So we were a fairly elite little uh, group of musicians that we'd done both events. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Who thing was, you know, it was mooted a few weeks before, and, and then not not much was kind of happening. And, and then um, we went down and did a rehearsal once we, we we ran the tunes once, and that was it. it we the next time I saw Pete and Roger was um, on stage it was like let's go and do it you know and um, you know very very sleepy pants uh, i didn't know I, I I knew Roger from Teenage Cancer Trust gigs, but I'd never really met Pete um, we did it, and there wasn't um, a huge uh, I got a, a lovely letter from the guys uh, a few weeks later, and, and which I still have. But I never really got to find out if they were happy with it, what what it was all about. And then um, I read Pete actually mentioned it in his autobiography, which came out like a year or so ago. And actually, that was the first time I got any idea of what he thought about Live Aid. Live Aid. Um So yeah, it was quite surreal, and it was a, it was a huge honour, and it it divided. Um, you know the the Who fans that some liked what me and Damon did and some absolutely hated it. Um, but that that was the great lesson in never actually reading comments on YouTube. So uh, yeah. you
0: know. <laughs> well, I tell you what, Steve, I liked it. It was solid as a rock. I thought your drumming was great, and it just goes show you that goes to show the level that you're performing at. The fact that you're having to read feedback on the gig through someone's autobiography is quite yeah. astonishing.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was honestly it was honest truth, and and. Um, you know, I, I, honestly, I didn't know what he thought of it because I never... I got a lovely letter, as I say, um, but then I actually read that he really liked it. At, um, I think he thought it was quite seat in your pants and it was a bit almost kind of, um, you know, the close that a band like that get to it being almost a bit punky, do you know what I mean? Let's just go for it yes. and, uh, and see what happens. But, um, you know, I, I'm never going to second guess... Peter and Roger and um, I'm really chuffed that Roger's just done this thing with uh, Wilco Johnson and Mick Talbot was playing in that band and I think that I just wish there was more things like that
0: going on. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's great stuff. Again, that's just a brilliant generation of musicians, that without a doubt. Now, you've done a lot of clinics with Chad Smith. Um, Yeah, Chad,
2: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. What's your thoughts on Chad Smith? Because everybody's got great Chad Smith stories.
2: I love him, he's he's, a, he's an absolute gentleman in, in real life, I mean, he, he kind of, he, he is, well, with like a lot of people in the music business, they, they, they put on a persona for the public, and then they put on a persona, that, well then they they are what they are in real life, and there's very few exceptions to that, Charlie Watts is what he is, and, and I love Charlie for that, and Chad is exactly the same, he's larger than life, um, there's no BS with Chad, he's straight down the line, he's just brilliant fun, he's a big guy, he's very positive, he's a very, um, uh, a a really, he's a great, uh, he's a good friend, he's a really good friend, he's become a very, very good friend, and despite the fact that he's in, you know, one of the biggest bands of our generation, um, he'll come round to the house if he's over, and I'll do him what he said was one of the best meals he ever had, which was uh, baked beans on toast. With <laughs> melted cheese and brown sauce and a cup of tea, and before we went to football because I took him down the valley to see Charlton and Chelsea, and uh, I'd asked the club if they would you know maybe let Chad come back to, come back to sort of the, meet the players into the director's thing. I don't go for all that rubbish, I just go and watch the match. but I thought Chad might like it, and um, he you know they were not particularly clever about it and and didn't accommodate even though this sort of legend was of drumming it was down at the valley. And then we got like a tap on the shoulder and it was the, um, somebody from the club saying, oh, the managing director of the club's daughters have noticed that Chad is in the valley. Would, would he like to come up to the players bar to, um, to meet the players and the managing director? And Chad just said, listen, I'll sign the girls' autographs, gladly, I'll meet them, but I'm not going up there. They can come down here. <laughs> oh,
0: this is absolutely brilliant Steve It's absolutely surreal to think that you made Chad Smith, uh, what was it, bacon and I don't know what was that, the traditional Eng- English dinner, then took it with the football Fantastic
2: It was beans on toast with, with melted cheese melted cheddar, brown sauce on and a cup of tea and he said, because Chad's into his fine dining, said Whitey, that was one of the best meals I've ever had
0: <laughs> a guy that's been around the world and, and played at the level—he's absolutely brilliant. Now, um, Oasis—you covered for the guys, and I think 2001. Um, 2001, yeah. Yeah. What was the what was the experience like working with the Gallagher's?
2: Uh, well, I actually loved it, and um, it was a real um, it was a real honour. I mean, it, it's another thing that you know has kind of been um, written out of the band's history that because I guess it was an American tour that, that I actually worked with them, and not a lot of people know it, but I did like. Um, three months uh, about three months with them. American tour culminating in um, a gig with uh, Neil Young at the Bursley Stadium in Paris and, and then Alan uh, came back but I have to say I, I really loved it I, um, you know uh, and I, I really enjoyed it I really enjoyed um, being around the guys and, and um, I really loved spending that time with Liam because I've got a lot of time I had a lot of time for Liam um, over the years and um, since my brother was, was kind of removed from the band, I've never really seen any of them. Um, and that's quite sad, really, but it's hey, it's rock and roll. But the experience was great. We had a, a great trip around America. We had a lot of fun, a lot of laughs, and I really, really enjoyed playing with them.
0: Great stuff. Excellent. You've worked with so many people, as obviously we're expressing. Is there any that you haven't had a chance to drum with that you would like to in the future? Is there any that springs to mind, Steve?
2: Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of... Um, Really, unless... I've always been a huge fan of Kate Bush. Um, I know that kind of a lot of people go, what? But I've just... I've loved Kate Bush since 1977. Um, and if she, I'd love it if she gave me a call. Um, I've always been a, a huge David Bowie fan. And believe it or not, I was a David Bowie fan when Paul P.W. was not a great David Bowie fan. And I used to kind of get stick for liking Bowie. Um He's someone I, I would love to have played on that last record. I, you know, I really love, um, I love, I love his work. Um, you know, I've got to sort of play behind Ray Davis. I've got to play behind, um, you know, uh, Jimmy Page. I mean, there was unfinished business with John Lord, um, who I absolutely adored playing with. Um, you know, going off after I left Paul um, to do. I mean, a lot of people think that you know my, my life finished the day that I finished working with Paul and um, it, the day after I, I actually decided that I wasn't going to tour with him, um, I got offered the job with, with John Lord and it was completely different from what I had done with Paul um, but it was phenomenal, we got to do some amazing concerts and got to travel to Brazil which i would never done and, and play with a seventy seventy piece orchestra and, and um, just I loved working with John and um he, he was like a such a gracious guy and such a and, and even though he was kind of seventy, um, he was timeless. He, he just he didn't he didn't have an age about him. And he had the best stories of anyone that I've ever worked with. And you, you'd kind of sit down with him after the gig and he'd have a glass of wine and and then he'd just kind of start chatting and it was not a um not but not in a kind of a show show off way and and, and he'd tell me about, you know, playing uh, organ with Jimi Hendrix and the trio in um, New York in like 1968 and, and I'm like John you've got to write a book you have to write a book and um, unfortunately he got he got sick and, and passed away which um, you know so uh, I, that was just an amazing experience um, you know I, I kind of keep my eye out for, for, for new talent I like I like sort of bringing on and working with new talent and um you know, Justin Sheehan, the, the keyboard player with the trio, phenomenal young musician. And Sam Gray, the guy that started a sort of a musical journey about five years ago in a very strange music business. And, um, you know, tried to sort of guide him to be a, a solo artist. And, and it just, it never kind of really happened for him. And, and that's the sort of, you've got to roll with it, you know, in terms of how it goes in the music business. But he's kind of found himself another path, and, and, and he's now um, writing he's a songwriter and and he's just had a, a number one in Japan and and he, and he works in South Korea and he's he's found this sort of whole niche for himself which is fantastic for me because I'm just kind of sort of learning about the world of k-pop and j-pop and and um, you know keep just keeping it fresh I love it
0: last question for you Steve favorite Paul weller track that you drummed on
2: Oh, it's really difficult that because there, I can't actually say one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, the, the, the answer that I have is that the period between 83 and early 86 when we toured and laughed and had so much fun um, gigging the Early Style Council and playing Café Bleu and our favourite shop, um, which to me are records that still stand up and I still love to listen to, Um, That period of time was absolutely phenomenal. And then really, from 1989, when I started working with Paul, um, when we couldn't fill, you know, a pub, basically, it was like literally sort of me and him and various bass players and Max Beasley in the band and, and all this kind of experiment. It was almost like going back to the Style Council again. We had so much fun. And that period really lasted from 89 until 96 and it was almost like one long tour and i see the first album wildwood and and stanley road as one burst of energy it was six years of pure energy and when we started out as, as i say in 1989 we were literally playing the, the town and country 2 and it wasn't sold out with. Maybe 200 people, and then by 1996 we were doing two nights at Finsbury Park, 38,000, and and that kind of vindicated the whole journey back, and you know, so it never really, you know, that was such an amazing time, and we we had some great times up until the end, and 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 I really enjoyed um, playing on um, Studio 150. I mean, which is not a fan's favourite. But I had a great time on making that record because I got to kind of co-produce it as well. So, um, yeah, that's my, you know, really, it's quite a fair proportion of my time with Paul was actually pretty fantastic. So uh, that's, you know, to say one record is really, really difficult. Um, I I love Paris Match, I think, because it was the first song that I ever played on that I felt was my coming of age musically. And obviously, Sunflower was such a, um, a brilliant brilliant rock song it's a a great thing to play on but then I listen to things like Ghost of Dachau which I'm just playing percussion on and I think God I'm so lucky to have played on that you know I mean at the end of the day it was over 40 chart hits with Paul from Style Council into the solo career so um, quite a lot to choose from really Excellent. Well, listen, Steve, it's been an
0: absolute pleasure having you on. I'm going to keep Steve on the line and try and persuade him to give me those Buddy Rich sticks that uh, he gave me years ago. I think think, think it's going to be unsuccessful, but I'll give it a go. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today.
2: Take care, mate.
0: Absolute honour to talk to Steve White. Barry, you just heard that interview for the first time there. What are your thoughts? Brilliant. Absolutely loved it. It's really, really good to know. I mean, he's so humble as well. I mean, you hear them go into detail about how he's played with the Who, about how he knows Chad Smith really well. But again, he's just happy to to chat
1: away about his experiences with
0: Buddy Rich and Lloyd Belson.
1: Extraordinary, isn't it? Aye. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. I don't know how you get these guests. I really don't. Well, you know, there you go They just,
0: they just <laughs> like to talk to me But end of the day, right As I said the other night I performed um, as part of the Glasgow Comedy Festival Malone's Bar uh, A good few people were there Which was great One shout out in particular To a band called One Last Secret Who all turned up from Kilmarnock Barry Now they've listened to the podcast They were all loving it Their manager Laura and the whole band themselves They were absolutely loving the whole podcast They decided to come along to see what it was all about Because um, they know obviously perform as well And there's, uh, they're playing at King's King Tuts on the 3rd of April. They're supporting a, an MTV award winning South African band called the Parlotones Thursday, 3rd of April King Tuts in Glasgow. Purchase tickets from the website of One Last Secret. You can find them all over Facebook, Twitter, and they've got an official page as well. £10 from King Tuts, the discounted rate. Really good band, I checked them out on YouTube. So Barry, Steve White, once again, it's good to know as well, if you remember, he said that his students. If they don't listen to Buddy Rich, if they don't listen to Louis Belson and Gene Kripp at The Greats, then he says, do you know what, forget about it after a couple of weeks. But that's a really good discipline way of looking at it. Who would you say, from a bass playing standpoint, is the equivalent back in the day as far as swing and jazz?
1: You've You've put me in the spot there. I think from a Motown standpoint. James aye. James Jameson. Aye, it needs to be Jimmy Boy, doesn't it? Jimmy Boy. Jimmy Boy. James Jameson
0: play alongs again, if that may be one for the for the for the younger listeners that don't know who he
1: is, Barry. How highly do you rate James Jameson? At the top, he's number one. And see the thing is, he's been on so many records that you probably a lot of people don't know about. It's frightening. He's he's just unbelievable. And how highly do you rate in comparison to him? Well, on a scale, should we should be doing a scale like Zero to ten or something. Where's like that. where's he at the top? So if he's he, he's, he, I mean he is, he's definitely ten plus. Mm. He's he's on the cusp of you mean being godlike. Would you say he's up there with Alex? Of, uh, to give a sporting equivalent, like right. a Wayne Rooney. No, no, he's well above that. Well above that. You can't, Barry's he, looking at me with anger here. I, that's that's a disgusting. Disgusting
0: comment. That's a disgusting comment.
1: Can't believe you said
0: that. (laughs) So, so So this this podcast could end up carrying an explicit tag on iTunes. (laughs) I'm only joking, iTunes. If you're listening to this, don't read into that. You know, Barry's just being ridiculous. Absolute pleasure. We have got Barry mentioned. There's some good guests, ladies and gentlemen. It's about to get really, really scary. Scarily good. The amount of the the couple of folk that have recently said yes to being in this podcast. Which I can't announce right now, but I, I really want to tell can someone. Can I announce it? You can't because you don't know, I don't think, unless you've been secretly reading my emails or my texts.
1: I do know. I'm going to say it right now. You're going to say it right no, now? No, do, do, He doesn't know. No, he doesn't do. know anything.
0: No, he doesn't know anything. He's bluffing. His poker face is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Barry has good. generally got the worst poker face. Can your Facebook profile picture, see if you take a picture of your poker face. Right we need to have the listeners see that because oh. I need that kind of, it's right. difficult on an audio podcast to express what I'm talking about. Yeah. Should, should we you take know? the picture right now? Take the picture right now. This will be right. 100% yeah. legit, ladies and gentlemen. Right. While we are doing that, yeah. please hit that subscribe button on iTunes. You want to keep up to date with us. Barry's getting a newfound fame. I'm kind of missed a trick at the gig the other night. I wish I'd announced him because there were so many people as a result of listening to the podcast that turned up to watch me play. And I wish I'd announced that Barry Caulfield was in the crowd because you would have got a lot of attention, Barry. Barry's taken as what the kids call him selfies right now but he's doing it wrongly, he's taking pictures of Ron who's across the other side of the room because yep. he's foolishly getting his camera at the wrong end, he doesn't know what he's doing he's a low tech redneck, he's from <laughs> off at the end of the day yeah. we will see you next week everybody,
2: take care